Welcome to The Word at First Prez. Over the spring and summer, we are doing a sermon series called Philosopher Kings. The goal of this sermon series is to examine the life philosophies of members of our congregation and how those life philosophies intersect with the Bible. Our hope is that you will find that everyone has something to teach us about life, faith, love, and our relationship with God. I hope you enjoy. Let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading, coming from Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second son and said the same. He answered, I will go, sir but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, You did not change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is a very common story. It's one that you all probably are well familiar with, which is when Jesus calls his first disciples. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, which is actually the lake of Galilee, And the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. He saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people, or in the Greek, fishers of men. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you probably know that we've been doing a sermon series that's called Philosopher Kings. This is based on a phrase that comes from the Greek philosopher Plato. And he believed that the best leaders, the people who we should be following in the world, that they have studied philosophy. And this is not just true of trained philosophers, This is also true of ordinary average people. Now here's the thing, every single person in here, you live according to a life philosophy. 
whether you've thought about that life philosophy, that is a completely different question. So back in January, I sent out to everyone, I said, hey, if you have a life philosophy, some idea that's really shaped who you are, please send that to me. I'd like to know about it. And I figured I'd get a few here or there. But I received so many, and they were of such a high quality, they were so thoughtful that I was able to create an entire sermon series around this. And so each week, what we do is we look at one or more of these life philosophies that you sent to me, and then we see how they converge with the Bible, how they diverge from the Bible. And ultimately, I think you will see that these have a lot to teach us about life, love, faith, and our relationship with God. You ready to go for today? All right. So today, we are talking about the philosophy of learning and education. And this philosophy is going to be from one person today. It comes from Larry Olson. And Larry Olson, he was a teacher, a history teacher, for his entire career. He taught high school history. And I want to begin with a quote from him about his time in the classroom. This is what he had to say. As a high school teacher, I've always been interested in the learning process. Every person has a particular and sometimes even peculiar learning style. This is a daunting task facing over 100 students every day. How do you reach them? Is there a key? Figuring this out wasn't a sudden enlightenment, but rather an evolutionary journey. Now I want to take some time to talk about that journey that he went through, because that's going to lay the foundation of what we are going to be discussing throughout the rest of this sermon. So when Larry began teaching, he taught in the way that I think most of us are used to being taught by our teachers when we were growing up, particularly the people in this congregation here, which is that when we were growing up, the student would, or the teacher would stand at the front of the class, would lecture on a topic. What would you do? If you were a good student, you would do what? You would take notes, right? And then you would very quickly try to memorize the information for whatever quiz or test was coming your way, and then you would abruptly forget that information and go on with your life, right? That's what we would do. So he looked at this, and Larry said, my students are bored with this. He noticed that, you know, like trying to stay awake. Did you ever perfect that? When I was in class, I could perfect the, the sleep while you have the pencil up. Not like they didn't know, right? <laughs> but they were bored with this. And he realized that they weren't learning the information in a way that was meaningful to them. And so he realized he needed to mix things up a bit. And he started thinking back on teachers that inspired him when he was in school. And he went through all of his teachers. And the one that really inspired him the most was his Western Civilizations 101 teacher from college. And this teacher, what he would do is he wouldn't just give you dates and facts. He would tell stories and peppered into these stories, you would learn all kinds of interesting information. He'd teach you about religion, art, music, geography, politics, economics, anything you'd think of, he would pepper that in. And on top of that, another thing that he would do is that he would encourage his students to ask difficult and probing questions. He wanted his students to understand that if they did just a little bit of digging, his knowledge could be their knowledge. And so Larry sets out. He starts working on changing his teaching style. 
And as he goes through this process, he does something that I think is actually absolutely genius. And I've never heard of any other teacher doing this. And when I read that, this is what he sent me in the note. When I read this, I was like, that, that is an amazing thing. And so what he told his teachers, or his students when they came into his class, is he would say to them, he would say, what you have to understand about this history that you are learning is that it is all constructed. Meaning that, yes, we know that there are certain things that happen, but we are piecing together what history is. We don't know it entirely. In many ways, we're guessing at certain things that happen. Now, I don't know about you, but I never had a teacher in school that told me that. When you read the history books in high school, did your teacher say, ah, we don't know for sure what happened, right? No, they told you this is the way it occurred, right? But what, he was doing this because he wanted them to understand that if they did some digging, if they looked at some primary sources, they could understand a little bit more about what's going on and they could construct the history of what happened. So he uses the Boston Tea Party as an example. You've heard of the Boston Tea Party, right? I had heard about the Boston Tea Party. I thought it was an actual tea party for a long time, you know, where people were sitting around and having tea. I had no idea it was about a riot, you know. So he says, if you look it up, what you will find is there's a date when it happened in the place. So it's when and where, right? So it happens in Boston. And when does it happen? December 16, 1773. Now, if you look on any page, today we go to Wikipedia, right? But let's say you go in there, you're going to read about what happened on that day. But that's only what happened that day. To understand the Boston Tea Party, you need to go back and look at the events that led up to that moment. You need to understand what were the colonists thinking about the British at that time? What was motivating them to riot on that particular day? Larry has this great line that I like which is that he says, knowing when and where, that's easy. But understanding why and how, that's knowledge. And I think that that is so true. And so what he would do is he would try to get his students to dig deeper. He would say, don't just look at the American side. Don't just look at the colonists. Look at the British. Ask, why did they do what they did? What were they thinking? What were those British soldiers feeling when they were facing that mob? Now, are you ever going to be able to know that you're 100% accurate about that? No, of course not. But you read some first-person accounts, you do a little bit of research around it, that's what brings history to life. Are you following me? You with me so far? Not falling asleep yet? All right, good. So, I want to take Larry's perspective on this his philosophy of learning, and I want to apply this to our scripture lesson today where I told you about Jesus calling his first disciples. Does that sound good? All right, let's start with the nuts and bolts of the story. What happens? Jesus, he's standing on the lake of Galilee, right? And he's teaching, and he's on the shore, and people start to gather around, and of course what happens, as more and more people gather, they want to hear him. Remember, they don't have microphones like we do, so he's speaking, they're trying to hear, and so they push him closer to the lake. So what does he do? He steps inside of a boat, right? And that boat happens to belong to a man named Simon, who later we will call what? Peter. We're going to call him Peter for the purposes of this sermon. So he asked Peter, push out a little bit. He starts teaching to everyone, right? And when he's done teaching, he tells Peter, hey, let's go out into the lake, and I want you to put down your nets. Now, Peter, by the way, 
He comes from a long line of fishermen, generations going back. They have fished this lake for a long time. Jesus, not so much. And so Peter, he says, hey, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but uh, we were out there all night. Not many fish out there, buddy. But he says, no, please do this for me. So they oblige him. They put the nets down. And of course, what happens? There's this enormous catch of fish that comes up. So many that he has to call over his business partners. Uh, James and John, they come over. They get all the fish into the boat. And these men, they're so amazed by this miracle that they're willing to leave behind their business. They're willing to leave behind their families in order to follow Jesus and be part of his ministry. Now, when you read this story, what we just read, we read it, right? You saw, read the scripture along with me. All of it seems very random, doesn't it? Jesus is on the shore. He's teaching. He happens to step into this boat that happens to belong to Peter. And then they go out, and as a means of saying thank you, right, he performs this miracle, and they are so awestruck by Jesus that they then are willing to leave their families and to follow him. Now, I want to take Larry's way of looking at history, and I want to go back, and I want to say, okay, this is the event. What happened before it? I want to go back, and I want to look at all the circumstances that were going on in Galilee that led up to this point. Now, some of you will be familiar with this, because I've said this like a thousand times. Some of you may not have heard it before, so we'll go back. But the first thing that you need to know about this time and place in the moments or the events leading up to this is that the economy in Galilee, and really in the whole Roman Empire, was in tatters. I mean, it was bad economically at this point in time. It was in freefall. And so many people, they were in serious debt. They were having to sell their property. They were having to sell their businesses. And a great example of this is the fishing industry on the Lake of Galilee. Now, if you ever go back and you look at maps of the Lake of Galilee from the first century, what you will find is that those maps, they will have all of these little villages. So jump forward for me. You will see all these little villages along the way here. Now, the only one that's not a village, by the way, is Tiberias. That's actually a big city. That'll be important in a second. But you see all these little fishing villages. Now, these villages, they're home to these businesses. These people, these families, they'd fish this lake for generations. And if you were a fisherman, you actually made a pretty decent income. You weren't poor, you weren't wealthy, you were somewhere in between. So it's a bit anachronistic to use this term, but they would have been middle class. So they kind of had enough money to get by and to enjoy their lives. Good business. Now, if you do a little bit more research, though, what you find is that in the 20s of the first century, which is when Jesus was beginning his ministry, right? So we don't know exactly when, but let's say it's around 28, 29, 30, somewhere in there, yeah? Right? We're guessing. Remember, this is what Larry was talking about. We're guessing. So we don't know, but let's just say it's around then. If you do some research, what you, just, what you find out is that the Lake of Galilee, it belonged to the Herods. Now, do you know who Herod is? I'm sure you've been here on Christmas Eve, right? And you heard about King Herod. What does he want to do? He wants to kill Jesus, right? And then he dies, and his sons take over. Now, these are people who were put in place by Rome. They're the rulers from Rome who oversee this area. And they would have claimed that particular lake as their own. It would have been royal property at that time. 
And so what this means is you couldn't just go out on the lake and fish whenever you wanted to. You had to sign a leasing agreement to go out there. And so if you were a fisherman, you would sign a lease with one of the Herods, who, by the way, they live in Tiberias. They live in that big city. And the leasing agreement would look something like this. Usually it was about a 50-50 split. Half of your fish went to Herod, <clears throat> half of your fish you got to keep and take to market. You follow me so far? Okay, so all of a sudden the economy begins to collapse, goes into free fall, right? What does Herod do? He tightens his control over <clears throat> the Lake of Galilee. And as he tightens his control, what he does is he starts renegotiating these leases. And so these small mom-and-pop fishing businesses, they're having to give over more and more of their catch to Herod. And we don't know for sure, but it is estimated by most scholars who read this that by the time we're getting to the point where Jesus calls his disciples, the split was 90-10. So likely, you catch 10 fish, 9 of them go to Herod, you get to keep one. Now, think about that for a second. That's the context of what's going on at this time. So when you're thinking about Peter, James, John, Andrew, right, all these guys who work together, they're working super hard for not a lot of benefit. So that gives you a little sense of why these guys might have been willing to leave their business behind in order to follow Jesus. Another thing you should know, in the scripture, doesn't it seem kind of random, right? Jesus steps in the boat and he's like, what's your name? Oh, you're Simon, right? And then they get to know each other from there. Most scholars believe they knew each other long before that. That they were friends before this ever happened. And so if that's true, that changes the entire context of the miracle of the abundance of fish, does it not? Think about it for a second. Think about it. So that would mean if Jesus knew them beforehand, would he know how much they were suffering financially? Oh, absolutely he would. So then he performs this miracle, does he not? And when he performs this miracle of the abundance of fish, what does that mean? Well, 90% of that has to go to Herod, but the 10%, they can take that to market. And so when we read this, we think, oh, the reason they're leaving to go with Jesus is because, right, the miracle is so amazing and all this. No, what it tells you is they can leave to go with Jesus because now they don't have to worry about the financial ability of their families to sustain themselves. They have that fish to take to market. They're going to be okay while they're away. Does this make sense what I'm saying? All right. So think about this for a second. We read the story. I find this to be amazing. We read the story. It was one way. Then we took Larry's philosophy. We did some research and it becomes something completely different afterwards, doesn't it? I mean, you fill in those details. Does it change how you read it? Absolutely it does. And this is what Larry was doing every day in his classroom with his students. But he would also go a little deeper than that. So Larry didn't just want them to learn the information. He wanted them to learn how to learn. He wanted them to learn how to learn. So <clears throat> I love this. He put this in his note to me. He said, whenever a student would come to me and say they didn't want to do math or they were bored with history, or they didn't want to write their weekly essay in English. He would say, well, hey, math teaches you how to think. History gives you something interesting to talk about. And English teaches you how to communicate. 
All learning is beneficial, even if you don't understand how it's going to benefit you in the short term, in the long term, it will benefit you. And so at the core of Larry's philosophy of learning is this belief that you need to ask the question, why? Why is the most important question you can ask? When a kid asks why, it's super annoying, but it's an important question that they're asking, right? You ask why, because it gets you deeper. The deeper you get into any subject, it comes from asking the question why. The second core aspect of Larry's philosophy is that humans learn best from stories. Absolutely true, right? If you take a piece of information, put it in the form of a story, you're going to retain that information a lot better than you would if I didn't do that. True? Now, Larry shares this with Jesus. Jesus taught in stories all the time, right? What were the stories he told? They were called parables, right? And you may remember, I'm sure all of you do, that I did a whole sermon series in Lent because you watch them all religiously, right? <laughs> called Parables of Jesus. Now, for those of you who might have missed one or two or all of them, I want to just go back and tell you what a parable is. A parable is a short story that is told with the explicit purpose of illustrating a moral or spiritual lesson. And when a parable is told well, it can convey deep truth and meaning to the hearer. Jesus told these parables for the same reason that Larry told stories. It helped people to remember the information. So, we read a parable. TC read a parable for us today. I want to use this parable. Very short parable, but there's a lot to it. All right. What's the parable? The parable is about a father and two sons, and the father owns a vineyard. Here's the story. The story is the father goes to the first son, and he says, hey, are you willing to go out and work today? And he says, no. But then later on in the day, he gets up and goes out to the vineyard and works. Then he goes to the second son. Father says, hey, are you willing to go out and work today? Second son says, yes, sure. But then later on in the day, he does not go out to the vineyard. That's the story. That's the entire parable. Jesus asked the people, which of these two sons did the will of the father? And everybody answers, which one? The first son. Because even though, right, God made, or God, father made the request, he went out and said no, but he went out and eventually did it anyway. So, is the story simple? Is the story easy to remember? Is the story easy to understand? Ah, uh, yes. But what does it mean? <laughs> right? <laughs> all right. The beauty of a parable is that it's all symbolic. Right? So everything in the parable is a symbol. So let's figure out what the symbols are. Then you can start picking apart the story. Okay. Who's the father? I already gave it away. Who's the father in the story? God. Always. Whenever Jesus says the father, he's talking about God. Right? You can get a, that's like on the quiz. You got that one. Check. All right. Vineyard. What's the vineyard in the story? The vineyard is the kingdom of God. And what's the kingdom? The kingdom is basically what you're living in right now. It's the earth. The only difference is the kingdom of God is ruled by God, not by human beings. And in God's kingdom, I've said this a bajillion times before, but in God's kingdom, everybody has enough food to eat. Everybody has clothes to wear. Everybody has a roof over their head. Everybody is cared for. Nobody is forgotten. That's God's kingdom. All right, then we get to the two sons. The two sons, they represent the family of God who are there to build and tend 
to the vineyard. Now, we have two different sons, right? And they represent two different kinds of people. So, the first son represents the people who have rejected God. These are the tax collectors. And just so we know, they're considered bad. They're bad people at this point in time. Probably today, they're still considered to be bad people, right? All right. But you have tax collectors. We're not going to get into why they're bad. Prostitutes, that speaks for itself. Sinners. These are people who are considered to be unethical. That's who the first son represents. The second son represents the people who have accepted God, right? Because this is the same thing in the story, right? He accepts God's request to go out to the vineyard. These are the people who are pious. They're devout. They follow God's laws. They do everything that God asks of them. These are the people who are considered to live very ethical lives. You with me so far? Okay. So, as with every parable that Jesus tells, there is always a twist. And the kicker in this story is that the first son, the one who has rejected God, right? The one who has essentially lived their life apart from God, These are the ones who are going out to the vineyard to do the work. Whereas the second son, the ones who have accepted God, they didn't bother to show up. And so the point of the parable is that the people who you least expect are the ones who are building God's kingdom. And in fact, the lesson of the parable is that not only these people building the kingdom, but they have primacy in the kingdom. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, these people are primary at the center of the kingdom. Now, why does Jesus tell this to us in the form of a parable? Why not just say, hey, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, you all are the best. You're going to be at the center of the center of the kingdom. Why doesn't he just do that? Because what you have to appreciate is that this message would have been shocking to the people of that day and time. Whenever anybody thought about the kingdom, they thought, oh, it's the people who follow God, the people who do all the right things, the people who live the right way. They're the ones who are going to be at the center of God's kingdom. But Jesus is telling us the exact opposite is true. Jesus is telling us that the people who we least expect, the people who are marginalized on the outside, they're the ones at the center of God's kingdom. This is what Jesus means when he says, the first shall be last... And the last shall be first. And he tells it in the form of a parable because it forces you to ask why. This is Larry's philosophy, right? You ask why. Why are the tax collectors and the prostitutes ahead of me? And this is where you have to really wrestle with it. Why are they ahead of us? Well, when you start to look at it, you realize that it has something to do with the people who feel they are deserving versus the people who feel they are undeserving. So, if you're a tax collector or a prostitute, you are marginalized. You're on the outside of society. You're an outcast, right? And so when Jesus tells you, hey, guess what? You guys are the ones building the kingdom. You're at the center of the kingdom. Are they going to be appreciative of that? Oh, you bet they are. They're so happy that they've been invited in and be a part of it. Whereas the people who have lived according to God's laws, they've done all the right things. They've lived the right way. They've lived that life. What do they say? Well, of course, I deserve to be there, right? I've done the right things. Give me my reward. So this is the hard thing about this parable. You know what it's saying? It's saying that those people who feel they're deserving, they're at the back of the line. Whereas the people who are undeserving, 
are first. Now that's a hard message to hear, right? That's a hard message to stomach. But the reason why Jesus tells it to us in the form of a parable is because that short story, remember the parable, is it super short? But if you start parsing it out and getting into the layers, oh man, you start to think it through, right? And then you ask yourself the question, which son am I? Which son are you? I would say most of us in here, unless you are marginalized, and there are a few people in our congregation, there's some people who are in that marginalized category, but most of us in here are not. So what does that mean? Where are we, according to this parable? Are we at the front of the line? No, we're at the back of the line. Again, this is a very hard message to stomach. But what's the point of it? What does Jesus want you to get out of it? Well, I think Jesus wants us to be humble, right? Don't do the right things because you think you're going to get rewarded. That's what a lot of people do. I'm doing the right thing because there's going to be a reward, right? I'm going to get, I'm, good things will happen to me. No, you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That's why you do the right thing. And so what Jesus wants us to understand is, you want to be at the head of the line? Don't think you deserve it, because you don't. Now, I find that to be amazing, right? Just like what we did with Jesus calling his first disciples. You read a story? There's all this stuff behind it. We read this simple little parable. It's literally four sentences, and you got all that out of it. Because you were willing to ask what? Why? And that's how I want to end this morning. I want to end with encouraging you to follow Larry's philosophy, Jesus' philosophy, which is to ask why. Now that's a scary question to ask. Because when you ask why, it can upend everything that you've ever known. That's happened to me so many times. I ask why, and all of a sudden i got to get rid of all this stuff that I thought I knew. And that's a scary thing to do when you've been holding on to certain things for your whole life. But I will tell you right now, it is absolutely worth it to ask why. Because when you do that, it actually strengthens your faith. I know a lot of people say, but what if, what if I, I don't believe anymore? You will. If you ask why and you ask it in the right way, it'll strengthen your faith. And you will become that kind of Christian that really can change the world for the better. But you have to be willing to ask the question. And what is that question? Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.